we need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. If we're going to have some real healing, we've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. Hello and welcome to Buffalo What's Next. I'm Lorenzo Rodriguez. And on today's show, we're going to tackle the subject of immigration, refugees, asylum seekers looking for a a better life either here or in neighboring Canada. And uh, it's been a a subject in the news, in the national news for some time now. Uh, It's been overshadowed by the the situation at the southern border, the U.S.-Mexico border. But in our very midst, we're having... Uh, rise of immigration, and there have been some developments that are going to only uh, exacerbate that 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 con- that situation. Today, I'm joined by Mr. Matt Tice. He's the director of the Vive Refugee Shelter uh, in the east side of Buffalo. It's a division of Jericho Road Community Health Center. Matt, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. And uh, Matt, uh, you've been with Vive now for about three years. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've been working as a social worker in different capacities before that, but you, what Vive is doing currently, and now you mentioned Vive has been around for 40 years, mm-hmm. but as of the last- About eight years eight or so. Eight years, yeah. it's now uh, part of Jericho Road. Mm-hmm. We've had Dr. Glick on before, who's the CEO of, mm-hmm. of Jericho Road, but we wanted to speak with you because you're you're there with, with these asylum seekers, mm-hmm. these individuals immigrating, to the United States, or in, in a lot of cases, what you're seeing is up en route to Canada. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And one thing that, that kind of has intensified the immigration into the United States or into Canada, it has been the, the Safe Third Country Agreement. Mm-hmm. Um, for those uninformed, and I wouldn't blame you because it happened on a Friday afternoon last month, March 24th, uh, President Biden and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau met. And uh, they basically, this agreement had been on the books for a while now, I think since 2004. But as of that date last month, both uh, heads of state basically said that they were going to implement or enforce this to a larger degree. And not to get too in the, in the weeds of, of immigration law, but it is an important factor here in this conversation. It, it was set forth to deter migrant crossing to each state and basically stated that if an immigrant was coming into one of the one or two of the countries, they had to be returned back to the last "quote unquote" safe uh, country that that they they came from mm-hmm. to make their their claim for asylum. Correct me if I'm wrong. That I think that's in a, in a nutshell. That's that's what we're talking about. Yeah, more or less. So mm-hmm. um, you've been seeing in your time with Vive a lot of asylum seekers here and already in the United States trying to head into Canada mm-hmm. by means of uh, the, the main pathway in northern New York State is Roxham Road, correct? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's since uh, be- shortly after this. This happened on Friday, March 24th, and then 
that night, Saturday at midnight, it, it really the border patrol, uh, the mounted police, they, they kind of cracked down on on on. They basically shut down Roxham Road. Yeah. So with with some of the new enforcement or the, the hardening mm-hmm. of the Safe Third Country Agreement, it meant that uh, one avenue that many people had access to go to Canada and file a, a refugee claim there was eliminated. Prior, there were many people that if they did not have a, a qualifying anchor relative, for instance, or they did not fit with some of the other exceptions for the safe third country, and I do actually want to talk a little bit more sure. of the distinctions of that in a moment, but <clears throat> they um, they now are not able to do that, and that that made it impossible that anyone could go to what would be called a, a informal crossing. One of the biggest informal crossings across really the, the entire northern border in the, uh, along Canada and the United States was Roxham Road. And that, just to clarify, is up uh, by um, Plattsburgh. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that borders like the Quebec area of, of mm-hmm. Canada. Yeah. And, and last year, almost 40,000 people crossed through that, wow. that uh, particular port of entry. And it's a, you know, it's a, a, a country road that dead ends essentially in Canada. It's about 40 minutes outside of Plattsburgh. And uh, because of the nature of how many people were crossing there, the, the Canadian government essentially est- established a, a processing center where if you did cross, you would actually be arrested, but then you could initiate a refugee claim. Now that has been it closed down entirely. People, unfortunately, are still actually trying to go up there, and they uh, are immediately arrested, and they're potentially facing even stronger consequences as a, as a result. They're also turned back to the United States and given what's oftentimes what's called an exclusion order so that they can't uh, even attempt to go into Canada. I think you can't, re- you can't uh, seek asylum uh, for about a year after that. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And and as a result, that has now meant that we in our shelter have seen many more people come. Uh, last year alone, we served about 2,500 people. And about 2,000 of those were on their way to Canada. 1,200 went through the formal process. Mm-hmm. They qualified to pass through at the Peace Bridge. 800 of them were on their way to, to Roxham Road. Now, we gave information. We, did, mm-hmm. were not cons- uh, we weren't um, counseling them to go to this informal crossing. But 800 people, if, if we were in this situation now, have nowhere else to go. These mm-hmm. were people that were here in, in the city of Buffalo. And... Uh, and now, where, where, where else are they going to turn? Um, we have this unique position as our, as our shelter to support individuals where, where we're at. But, you know, there's really nowhere else where they can turn and, except maybe considering a, a claim here in the United States now. And we're going to continue just trying to understand uh, the severity of the, of the situation, but um, explain to me what the, the team at Vive does. What, what is what are you tasked with? Yeah, so uh, we are 
we're a shelter first. You know, you mentioned I'm a social worker. Like we are uh, designed to be a trauma-informed space. We want to uh, be a, a respite, a, a safe opportunity for people who are on their journey towards their next step to to be to have a moment of rest to work out their next steps in uh, wherever they're headed next. And so they have a bed, but they also can get free access to medical care through Jericho Road. Um, they get access to case management. Anyone who stays with us has to be working on a their legal claim, their mm-hmm. asylum claim. And so we have a legal department that as a part of Vive, we have a small legal staff. And then we also partner with Journeys and Refugee Services and their legal department where they have a couple attorneys there that will consult or, or take on cases. And uh, additionally, we have, you know, we've got English classes every day. We've got, um, you know, we've got a really active kitchen. Any, any, anybody who stays with us, we don't charge them anything. The only thing that we expect them to do is that everybody has a chore. So it's almost kind of mm-hmm. like a family. You, you help prepare meals. You're taking out the trash. You're watching kids in our playroom. And uh, that so they a, all contribute. You a hairdresser that, that has kind of almost like set up shop yeah. in, in the, the uh-huh. shelter. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, it's it's busy all the mm-hmm. time. It's really, really full. But uh, we, we do have this really unique position. And there is only a very small handful of other organizations that are like us mm-hmm. across the country. I could probably count on one hand how many uh, that do this kind of shelter work serving asylum seekers at the level in which we do. And uh, it's almost like a, a, a breather, a pit stop on the way to potentially Canada. I had a my question regarding, it's something like 70 countries in the last year that you've mm-hmm. seen, uh, 2,281 migrants, I, I, I think mm-hmm. is the number I, I yeah. read. Where are the bulk of, of, of these immigrants coming from mm-hmm. uh, that you're seeing in, uh, currently? Yeah, I think most recently, probably the biggest groups would have been from Congo, Angola, Venezuela, Colombia, Peru. Um, we've seen more people showing up from Sudan. You know, mm-hmm. kind of look around the world and see where conflict or where violence is happening. And then we can project forward in the next few months. These are likely going to be the places where people are showing up. This last summer, we had more individuals coming from Russia and Ukraine. Hmm. Before that, we had a lot of people coming from Haiti. So uh, we we kind of can anticipate that th- that people will come based on what's ever going on. And do, is it mainly are they entering the, the country southern border? Or are they just, how 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 do they arrive to Buffalo? Yeah, for the most part, you know, for the most part, they're coming through the southern border. And uh, they, you know, they already had contact with uh, immigration authorities and, uh, you know, they then maintain that contact. And so they are working through the legal process Mm -hmm. and they are continuing to to maintain that contact with the legal authorities. So it it is an important distinction. It's a lengthy process. It is. Well, not only is it a lengthy process, but these are these are people who are going through. A, a very intentional process that is built up that you can go through to eventually claim asylum. And a distinction I think we should make moving forward 
uh, asylum seekers and refugees. Mm-hmm. There's there's a distinct difference there. It's not they're not interchangeable. What what's the difference there? Yeah, you know, it it in some ways it could be interchangeable in the sense of where they're coming from um, initially, but um, you know you you could see people refugees coming from Congo or Angola, um, but they a person who gets a refugee status. They are granted that by the UN High Commission for Refugees, UNCHCR, or UNHCR, and they get that status even prior to arriving here in the United States. And then they have access to additional benefits and other supports. And then they get a uh, they get connected to a resettlement agency who will ensure that they uh, know what they're doing and they can connect and, and, and settle into the community. An asylum seeker, on the other hand. They oftentimes will come into the United States, and they are—they're um, still working through that process. Mm. It, it almost feels defensive, you know. They've—they've they've crossed the border, they've had contact with immigration authorities, and then they are initiating a claim. They're seeing what next steps they can take, and they're not always successful either. Um, you know, the rates depend. I think it's all like a- Third, at least on the Canadian side, mm-hmm. a third of, of of the, I think it was between, actually from March 25th to April 16th, 264 asylum claims in an in an official port of entry, and only a third of them were were deemed eligible. So, mm-hmm. the, I mean, I feel like the Canadian uh, government and the U.S. government are kind of just also uh, overburdened, but but mm-hmm. it's just it, it they're it's a it's a it's a rigmarole almost that, mm-hmm. they, that, that a lot of hoops that, that need to uh, be jumped through to, to get asylum, to get somewhat a temporary mm-hmm. stay here. And, and then then comes the, the life after that. Yeah, there, there is. And I mean, that's part of where we we take on this responsibility of being able to support people through that process. You know, if you are on your own and you're doing this, it can be incredibly onerous. It can be really hard. Uh, But when we can stand with them or, you know, we even have opportunities to connect volunteers to go with a person Mm. that they can maybe go to appointments or that they can um, help talk with the, the process of what it looks like here in the United States or in Canada. I mean, we're, we're not on the side of Canada, but we can maybe prepare them for mm-hmm. that. And, uh, but it's, it's really hard and it's really lengthy. And uh, it is not, you know, people may have this perception of you can just come here and then you're just here. No, mm-hmm. you, you're really working very, uh, like with a huge amount of effort over a long amount of time. I'm speaking with Matt Tice. He's the director of the Vives Shelter. Um, it's out on, on the east side of Buffalo, mm-hmm. right? Correct. Yep. 50 Wyoming Avenue. Mm-hmm. Um, for for years now, you you you've been in this role now for three years, roughly. Correct. Yes. So yeah. you've seen a bit of of what it was before this this mm-hmm. new interest in enforcing it. And one thing I, I I noticed you mentioned at one point that. A lot of a lot of individuals are are going to Canada because they don't feel safe here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the the reasons for going into Canada, you have a family member on the other side um, that that will help in the transition to full life in in that country. But you're seeing though that individuals here are just you're in the east side of Buffalo, so the the, the top shooting is yeah. right right nearby. Yeah, yeah, I. I... You know, I really distinctly remember a couple of conversations with um, some individuals who, 
you know, they had started the process right around that time of, of initiating a U.S. claim. And then they made this really painful and difficult decision. They were in tears as they came to me and they said, you know, I don't feel safe as a, as a black man being here if, if people are looking to target us. And uh, they, they made that decision to, you know, Canada feels like it is safer for us to go there. And so then they, they did that at that point. Um, and, you know, there's high rates of detention, the, the kind of the complicated nature of, of people not feeling safe here in the United States, not just for them feeling targeted for, for their ethnicity, their race, or these sorts of things, makes it feel like that uh, potentially going to Canada is, is a more um, viable option for them. And people are going to do whatever makes whatever makes them feel the safest. Right. Unfortunately, you know we've actually even seen that this could have dire consequences uh, in the um, very soon after these policy changes went to an, into effect. There was at least one, maybe it was a couple other families that they drowned trying to mm. cross the um, the St. Lawrence River. And ultimately, they found that it was actually people that were trying to come um, south from Canada. But people will do desperate things when they're they're driven to trying to find safety for their right. family. And I and I think that we are seeing this a lot now. Is that there is many people are presenting to us now, following the the changes in the the agreement that maybe one part of their family qualifies to cross into Canada. Um, you know, a parent may qualify, but their children don't, or vice versa. Or actually, it's probably the, the other idea, is that their children qualify to cross, but, not the parent. but they don't. Mm. And the, um, the, the agreement really doesn't have nuance around that. So parents are, are having to make this very difficult decision mm. of, do I send my children to Canada where they may have a better likelihood of success in their claim or uh, to connect up with other community members, for instance, um, or do I keep them with me here in the United States? And, and it is a heart-wrenching thing yeah. to watch them go through. Uh, it's, it's come up quite a bit recently, and, uh, and it's just been, um, it's been really difficult to watch, but at the same time, like it's uh, it, important that we can stand with people as they mm -hmm. go through these things, that we can give them good information, that we can uh, also help them take care of their heart, body, mind as right. they weigh these components. Uh, it just, it, it, it hurts my heart. As a Cuban American, I heard about the Peter Pan program, which is similar, mm -hmm. where, where individuals would send off their their children mm -hmm. to a brand new country where they yeah. they had up the sponsor, but you didn't know what was gonna what they were gonna face mm -hmm. on the other side. So yeah, it's a heart heart wrenching uh, uh, decision to make, and I'm I can't imagine it uh, as a as a parent. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess the general populace may think that it's almost done once they're here, but there's a, <laughs> there's so much to this the story that that or just a situation that, that's ongoing because we are a nation of immigrants. Mm -hmm. Last time I checked, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm here as a byproduct of my parents mm -hmm. uh, coming from Cuba in the 80s. Uh, and, it, and it was a trying uh, process for them, but it, I just feel like we're, we're almost, it's getting more complicated or, mm -hmm. or uh, much more convoluted for 
for asylum seekers and, and refugees, immigrants into this, this country. You've seen the humanitarian side. You've also worked before. Uh, prior to this, you were in, in, in Philadelphia mm-hmm. uh, working at, to combat chronic homelessness. Mm-hmm. So once, uh, what's the first step? Is getting documentation? Is it a is it a residency card? Is it? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's it's initiating that asylum claim, and then one of the next steps is uh, working towards getting um, your work authorization. Mm. So uh, we see. Um, pretty much everybody that moves out of the shelter, they're working, they have a, a place to stay, and uh, we are, uh, we're able to help support a, a kind of an easy transition out into the community. And there are additional resources that are there for them, uh, but um, there's, we, we've been doing a lot of advocacy too at a local level, speaking with organizations and groups like the Homeless Alliance of Western New York and and trying to creatively think about how to uh, involve and integrate groups like this that maybe have historically not been included in in um, supports. So hoping to see some really exciting opportunities for housing supports when they when they move out that they have that they people are paying for like that they are uh, they're using their work authorization they're using all of the the resources that they built up and uh, but that they then are able to be a part of our community with with a better likelihood of success as they leave the shelter because there are those that have have family have have mm-hmm. known loved ones uh, in in Canada in the US mm-hmm. but there's a great deal that just come together and that's that that's that's it mm-hmm. um so it's it, for me i just wonder how much of a safety net how much of a assistance do we have to help these individuals once they begin their their process to become legalized citizens or residents or what have you um what happens afterwards so there's there's my story there's always mm-hmm. there's always the opposite and yeah. and that's the concern here because on a on a humanitarian angle we know that we have to we have to take care of every individual as best mm-hmm. as we can, but then uh, logistically our resources as a city, then it becomes that that becomes the, the the next angle to this. Yeah, I mean, there's there's not enough attention being uh, given to asylum seekers and supporting this particular group. They've always kind of been at the margins anyway. Uh, they they especially as, uh, at the front end, they don't end up qualifying for many of the other things that folks who um, don't have that are experiencing poverty or other things they they wouldn't access that they can't you know if they try and get emergency support they don't have those same qualifications that same that same safety net and so now we've had to advocate for those and at this point we as a community need to start thinking about how to do this because especially a lot of these policy changes means there are going to be more and more people mm-hmm. here with the very very limited resources of you know organizations like us vive um, other organizations like journey's end or justice for migrant families we've been standing in the gap but we there's not enough of us and there's not enough uh attention being spent about how to creatively support these folks. You know, we are desperately full in the shelter right now. Um, I don't want to see any families go to the street. 
but uh, especially, you know, more often than not, it's you know, we've got uh, families with young children, pregnant individuals. Uh, <laughs> if they come up, they come show up at the door, and they don't qualify for anywhere else. Like w- we can't see these mm-hmm. people go to the street, but uh, but I think that that's going to continue to grow, especially of the access to Canada that they previously thought that they would be able to do mm-hmm. um, has been eliminated. In even just the last week, I've had multiple calls from the border saying, we have this family here. They have nowhere else to go. Can you come get there? One day I had to go myself and go pick them up. Other times they're being dropped off at our shelter last minute. And uh, and so we, we have to think this through. And, 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 you mentioned Matt that you do Vive does whatever it's in their power to to house these individuals and house these uh, people looking for a better life, but there's only so much so much space. Mm-hmm. What happens after that? After you have to say no. Well, so what we've been doing more recently is we've had some host families that have helped support people. Um, like I mentioned, Justice for Migrant Families has been a phenomenal support for us. Uh, they've creatively helped us think through other additional options that people temporarily could stay at. Um, we're at capacity, and we've been at capacity on the, this entire year, honestly. Um, and, and that was even prior to the new changes with the border. And, uh, and so like we're, I think we're going to be even more stretched uh, but we are we are getting ready to move into a new building. Um, Fantastic! A, a new we we're really excited about that. We've actually gotten some phenomenal support from uh, the Scott Beeler Foundation, uh, many of the other organizations across the city, foundations, and individual donors have helped us uh, prepare for this. Uh, and if anybody's interested in checking out more information about that, you, they can look at our website. It's vive v i v e dot j r c h c dot org. Um, but we, um, so we are really excited about this new chapter, but that can't happen soon enough. <laughs> and, uh, and, and even then it's still going to be very limited. Um, so like, yeah, we we gotta, we gotta think about this even more. It can't just land on our shoulders or the shoulders of a couple other organizations. And kind of going back to the, 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 the immediate, uh, the immigrants that are, that are trying to, to make it. It, it, are, are journeying to Canada, for example, uh, crisscrossing uh, from wherever th- their their point of origin is, don't know that these rules have changed, correct? Many don't, um, and and I I do want to note that um, you know that people often will think you know this last week I had people come and present at our shelter, or maybe they even went to the border and were turned back, and they thought that they had a qualifying relative. Um, Under the Safe Third Country Agreement, there's four things that you can um, have an exception that allows you to be able to cross into Canada. One, you have a qualifying family member who who already has some status in, in Canada, and this family member has to be a blood relation or, or um, they could be a, a half-brother. Cousins do not count. And mm. many people think that a cousin would be a qualifying member. They will turn get be wow. turned back at the border. Um, you have to have a qualifying visa. Um, if you're an unaccompanied minor, 
so you're under 18 and you do not have uh, a parent either in the United States um, or or even I believe in Canada too you would be able to to cross and uh, or if you have a death sentence proclamation or, or the, a death sentence in your home country and an example of this you know last year we had a young trans man who um, fled a uh, Middle Eastern country and he actually came to us with a um, uh, a document that said like we are you will be killed and um, he was able to flee the country and was able to use this as as evidence to cross into Canada and then uh, claim refugee status there. Wow. Um, I mean, there's so many stories. There's mm-hmm. so many individual uh, instances where, where, I mean, everyone that's that's coming here or to Canada, it's just seeking a, a, a better better life than, than than where they were previously mm-hmm. it's it's unfortunate to hear that that while we have places like vive and, and jericho road and journey's end trying to trying to help it's just not enough mm-hmm. on the show we, we we try to look to the future buffalo what's next for the homelessness situation here in, in western new york because of your your past experience i'd like to touch on the larger mm-hmm. point of that what what can we do to help that part of the community. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I do. I mean, I noted it already that resources are are very very stretched. There, you know, there's one emergency shelter that we use now for single men if we don't have space, and that shelter is closing um, Sunday. Mm. I think this upcoming Sunday, and uh, we. It, it almost feels like that constantly. These doors are being closed, so. Um, I think that we we need to start thinking about ways to bring in both um, state, federal, county, city, all of these players, and also private and and uh, other organizations, other uh, community members, to respond to these things. Um, especially when we have the gaps. Homelessness has been uh, continually growing, um, but we also do have evidence-based responses. We've got some amazing stuff with uh, interventions like Housing First, um, We've got, uh, which starts with an apartment. It starts with housing, uh, and, and then we build everything else from there. That was uh, the previous work that I did. And, and people stay in in um, housing long term and they get amazing stability and get reintegrated within the community and and I, I think that there's really some creative ways that we can do that with serving this population mm-hmm. too uh, we've been talking about that with um, ideas like uh, it's a federal program around rapid rehousing and uh, and how to involve this group but we'll have to push the envelope a little bit um, that we've always said that well, this, they don't qualify. How how do we find the ways to uh, to get people to qualify? Um, and it might be drawing in all of these different elements together. And then on on our on the basis of our, our conversation originally, the the immigrants, the refugee seekers, asylum seekers. Um, for for refugees, asylum seekers, what can we do to to ease that 
that transition to, to a new life here or mm-hmm. elsewhere? Yeah, I, people are looking for connection. They're looking for community. Um, so, uh, you know, the question we ask all the time is like, especially for Buffalo, what kind of neighbors do we want to be? Um, we we want to be welcoming. We want to be that city of good neighbors. And uh, so it's looking out for the people that are here, seeking them out too. Um, go talk with people that are different from, you know, from yourself. Spend time. Um, invest yourself, your time, your energy, your resources. Uh, get to know other people. Um, there's great opportunities to volunteer. There's great opportunities to spend time with with somebody and invest in them. Um, we'd happily take volunteers. We'd happily uh, get them involved on our end. But if it's not with us, there are other. There's lots and lots of chance chances to do that everywhere else. And so again, I would put that out of what kind of neighbors do we want to be? Is there something that we haven't touched on that? Um, I, you know, I I think that. I would, the, the, the last thing that I would say is I want to just continually make sure that we're getting the message out to asylum seekers themselves to have the awareness about um, the changes, the, the what's gone on. And, you know, they, they may be listening or somebody could help get that message out to them. Because there could be consequences about just going and presenting at the Canadian border if you do not qualify. So um, it's it's important to educate yourself about these things. We had mentioned the the exceptions. We really want people to learn about this because we do not want you to face the negative consequences that I had mentioned. And uh, so um, there's there's resources that are out there. There's some really great stuff that are on the internet. So just do some research too. Speaking of the internet, you mentioned the Vive website, but mm-hmm. uh, just one, once more, for in case anyone wants to volunteer, mm-hmm. uh, donate, or, or just help in any way, maybe we have any lawyers that know immigration mm-hmm. law. That, mm-hmm. that that's a big component. You mentioned that you only have two yeah. uh, mm-hmm. legal legal aids on on, on staff. Um, where can where can others uh, help Vive or Jericho Road? Our refugee asylum seeker community. Yeah, the the other website that I mentioned earlier is kind of about our next project of where we're going next. But I'll give um, jrchc.org/vive. V-I-V-E. Uh, that there you can learn about donating. You can learn about volunteer opportunities. You can learn about um, just what we're doing. Or even if you yourself are an asylum seeker, you're trying to look into information, um, how to connect up with our legal department, um, and maybe see even some basic information about going to Canada, some forums. All of that stuff is listed on our website. Excellent. Matt, uh, I wish you continued luck and uh, never, never-ending luck because this is uh, it's, it's, a, it's a continuing issue it's going to it's going to continue to happen because we need to on a larger scale address this uh, and until we do um, I, I appreciate that there are people like you like the staff at Vive uh, helping our, our immigrant population to kind of get on the, on the right foot and, and, and get started in, in this country or or beyond so uh, thank you for that thank you for your time today Matt yeah thank you for having me and thank you for letting me talk a little bit more about this really important thing my pleasure You're listening to What Buffalo, What's Next. I'm Lorenzo Rodriguez. We'll be back after this. 
Buffalo is home to many historical treasures, including architectural gems. Central Terminal affected everybody. Everybody from the common man to the movie star walked this concourse. Beloved community establishments. They might get a glimpse to see Lena Horne. Uh, they might uh, see Dizzy or Miles Davis, uh, you know, Charlie Parker. And homes for local sports teams. When we talk about an institution, Memorial Auditorium was an institution. The WNED PBS original production, Remembering Western New York, Explore some of these iconic structures and their connection to people who live in the region. There was a time when Buffalo's Main Street was the focus of holiday shopping in Western New York. Watch Remembering Western New York now on YouTube. Not sure what you want to watch tonight? We've got you covered. Visit WNED.org slash TV schedule to see what's on WNED PBS, WNED Create, and WNED PBS Kids. Click the primetime button to see what's on tonight. You can also search for your favorite programs in the search bar or look for programs by date and time. Visit WNED.org slash TV schedule and start making your viewing plans now. When your company supports WBFO, your NPR station, it's not only good for business, it's good for the community too. You get results and we keep producing quality local programming. Learn more by calling Bill Sauer at 716-845-2201. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. Welcome back to Buffalo What's Next. Next up, our Angeli Preston and Emily Watkins speak with a prominent drag performer in the Western New York scene, Kasha Davis. My name is Mrs. Kasha Davis, married lady, 20 years. And uh, my name, Kasha, is first pet, and Davis is the street I grew up on. And uh, my pronouns, as Mrs. Kasha Davis, are she, her. And I live in Fairport, New York. And I also uh, am, uh, I grew up as Ed Popel, and uh, my pronouns during the day are, <laughs> out of drag, are he, him. And you're, you, you live in Fairport, but did you grow up in Rochester? I grew up in Scranton, Pennsylvania and I moved to Rochester to open a call center uh, back in 1998. And uh, I moved to Rochester after growing up in the closet, getting married to the first person, first woman who would say yes, staying in the closet, because back then, we're talking like growing up in the 70s and 80s, it was not uh, uh, the type of environment in Scranton, Pennsylvania, where I felt comfortable being myself. And I didn't grow up in a household where I felt comfortable being myself. I was always uh, told I was too feminine, too fancy, too frilly, and uh, a fairy. And so I uh, eventually, when I came out, I moved to Rochester, and it's where I first saw rainbow flags and uh, people of the same sex holding hands at a, a pride parade, and I thought I was an Oz, <laughs> the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> the Wizard yeah. of Oz, yeah. So when you moved to Rochester, you felt like you could truly be yourself. I began the journey of being myself and allowing myself to figure out who I was. You know, I, I grew up in this small town of Scranton, Pennsylvania. I was closeted. I went to college uh, and married the first woman who said, said yes. And I, although I was having the college experience there, was really not exploring who I was and allowing myself 
to be who I was. So it took me getting away from that environment, taken out of that uh, family unit and that hometown to discover who I was. And it was here where I started to see uh, that there was that community of people. And I began to build a family of, of people outside of my you know, given family uh, where I can call home. When you first began to live in your true self, how did you tell your family how, and if, if so, how, what was their reaction to that? When I came out to my family, uh, my father uh, spit in my face and told me to get out, and my mother wasn't willing to accept it. And so I felt disowned from my family for quite a while, and we were very separate. And it took me time uh, to realize that it was about me feeling confident and loving myself and really giving them no choice that they began to come around later in life, um, both of them prior to their passing. So it took time for that to happen, but it was the reality for me of realizing that it was about me first loving myself and accepting myself for who I am and not trying to please anybody else uh, uh, to give them who they thought I should be, that that journey began to to happen. And, and for me, drag happened later in my life. I didn't start doing drag until I was 44 years old. I'm 52 now. Wow. And, yeah. And uh, so it was later in life. And it was a community of drag queens here that are well known Darien Lake, Pandora Box, Aggie Dune, Ambrosia Salad. I would see them performing, and I thought, I'm not, I don't want to do that. I had a theatrical background, but uh, long story short, I ended up uh, seeing a, a, a cabaret performer who was telling a story and singing live and had a message, and then that resonated with me. And her name is Miss Richfield, 1981. And that's when I started on the drag journey. You know, it's for me, it's uh, I live as a man, and I identify as Ed, he, him, and I dress as Mrs. Kasha Davis. Both of these people are me. Uh, they are aspects of my gender, and I am now celebrating that feminine side that I uh, so looked towards as a child, you know playing with dolls, liking to decorate, being fancy, but also playing football and, and doing things that were those uh, you know, stereotypical things for boys or girls. I did it all, and I liked it all, so now I'm able to, to see that that's okay and celebrate that and be myself authentically. What goes into deciding, deciding your outfit, your hair, your makeup? Well, walk us through that. I mean, first of all, it's, a lot of it's proportions. I am a broad-shouldered fella, uh, and so for me, the, the, the upbringing that I had in my drag family, my drag mother was about the details with the nails and the, and the jewelry and making sure everything was put together. It's not comfortable, as you know, wearing heels, and so you, you wear the heels because you're on stage and, and, and you have the hip pads and you have the, the padding and everything to tease the eye when you're on stage. That's my form of drag. All drag now, because of RuPaul's Drag Race, being exposing drag to the world, the franchises all over the world, is, is valid. So we have bearded drag queens, we have drag kings, we have cis-gendered uh, individuals uh, uh, performing. So it's all an expression of self. And it's such a fabulous art form uh, that is misunderstood sometimes, but it really is just a way of expressing ourselves. And RuPaul says it best. We're all born naked and the rest is drag. So we dress uh, for, for whatever it is that we're doing for the day. I want to talk about Imagination Station. When did you start doing Imagination Station and can you explain what that is? So Imagination Station has a couple uh, avenues. First and foremost, we started with our drag story hour here at Blackfriars Theater 
and it was inspired by the Drag Story Hour starting up in San Francisco years ago. And we've been doing it for six years now. And Mary Tabali Hoffman and Danny Hoskins of the theater came to me. We had worked together previously. And they said, this is such a special thing that you should do. And when I began to do it, I started to see the faces and I started to see the enthusiasm, the excitement, and the, the space that I needed to fill or that I had the desire to fill that was not there when I was a child. Accepting yourself, loving yourself. It doesn't matter what it is that you're accepting and loving about yourself. Being who you are. And more importantly, or as important, excuse me, is that if you happen to see someone different in the world, to treat them with kindness. You know, uh, a part of upbringing for me was bullying. And my mother told me, compliment them. Find a way to compliment them. And be kind uh, to them because there's something that they're fearing about themselves possibly that they're projecting that on you. And so Imagination Station Drag Story Hour with Mrs. Kasha Davis has its live shows and over the period of the pandemic because the theater was shut down we created four episodes of a television show. Myself, Mary Tabali Hoffman and Danny Hoskins and we worked with a, a production company called Fish and Crown Creative and we did four episodes of this television show. Now you've got to imagine it's Mrs. Doubtfire hosting Pee-wee's Playhouse in Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Oh. And it's that is, this, that is what it is all about. And what's exciting is that you get to have a glimpse into this neighborhood of how this community works together. And we don't have to sit and explain ourselves. We accept and we are kind to one another as we are. And we have predicaments like any other sitcom would that we have to get through. But the good news is we have an emergency librarian on call who happens to have the messaging in the in the books that help us to get through these scenarios. Where can we find these episodes? Because I I'm in, I want to watch. <laughs> yes. Well, so we're in the process of landing the streaming partner of our dreams. Who is it? Who wants to take the chance to work with us to have this first television show hosted by a drag queen, and is created in the Rochester community with artists and directors and technicians all based here, uh, much like what Mr. Rogers did years ago in Pittsburgh. And so I'm not comparing myself to Mr. Rogers, but we're, we're looking at that formula and we're saying, we wanna celebrate our community, we wanna celebrate the artists in that community, and we want to have a message of kindness that streams through the whole thing. Even if we're having a, 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 a situation where someone's angry or frustrated or there's tension, we combat that and we work through that with kindness. This is my first time uh, attending a drag story hour and it was, it was so, just such a lovely experience and it was fun, but one thing that, that surprised me was you have the kids interacting and, and doing exercises and being engaged. Is that typically what happens during uh, drag story hours or is it just something that you wanted to, to do yourself? Well, we have, we have a, our unique, unique way of conducting our story hour. And we have a great team. Danny Hoskins is the director. Mary is the heart of the program. These two are both parents. They have little ones. And they are hoping to encourage their, their kids and their, their fellow uh, friends and people in the community to be a part of this because it is a, a matter of spreading that kindness, right? Well, for me, I've, I'm, I'm an uncle. And I've got younger siblings, and I've always loved kids, and I have two darling stepdaughters who are now 30. So, but when they were growing up, 
and I was starting uh, in drag, they would get dressed up in my costumes and do shows for me. And I've always enjoyed uh, the presence of children in my life. And I know that they have a short attention span, so we've got to get to the point, and we've got to make sure that there's some activity there where they're moving and they're participating. Because they don't, nobody wants to be just spoken at, so you want to be engaged. And so through engaging them, uh, they'll, they'll be more likely to, because they want to know what's next to follow. So they, they're more likely then to listen. I want to talk about um, some of the opposition about drag story hours um, from people who don't agree with it for whatever reasons that they say. What would you say to them? First and foremost, I would say it's a certainly a deflection uh, uh, tactic to things that are actually big concerns to a threat to children in this country. I mean, I don't think I need to tell you that uh, uh, we have uh, concerns with school shootings. And this is something that we need to regulate, not eliminate, but maybe there's some regulation that can occur and some structures that can happen. But so we're going to make a deflection. It's like, yes, that's, that's been a problem. Oh yes, thousands of, of, of children have been shot at school, but look at what the drag queens are doing. Well, did you sit through the show? Do you know what's happening at that story hour? I don't know what's happening at every story hour, but I know the books that they're reading, and I know the intent is there. In general, I can sense and see that these people who are drag artists, many of my peers, have mostly had family struggles and are will and wanting to give back and to provide a space to prevent what happens in that closet or when someone is afraid to express who they are. That turmoil can be deadly. And so by exposing things like this and showing a community and showing that you can be yourself and celebrate each other, it's saving lives because it's something that is not there, uh, maybe in their childhood homes or in their schools. And so by doing this and showing that there's a community, there's always hope when someone finds a community, no matter how you identify. And so that's what we feel that we are able to provide. There's a lot of uh, hate, and oftentimes I have learned in uh, my years <laughs> that anger is a lovely disguise for fear. What are you fearing? Maybe do a little bit of research. Attend a story hour. Um, see what's happening. I think you mentioned it was your first time, and, and I'm not sure if you were surprised or if, you, if anything was enlightening other than uh, some of the short things that you were sharing, but it's about love, kindness, acceptance, and treating each other with respect. And these are things that we can learn children of all ages. You know, these books are not written necessarily for the kids to read. It's for the parents to read to the kids to have a discussion. The theme that I'm sensing from your story hour is be kind. Yes. Um, talk more about that. Well, so uh, years ago we had a situation where there was a threat that there would be some protesters. And uh, our directors, Danny and Mary and myself, we all sat together and said, how are we going to address this? And they're saying that you have an agenda. They're saying that you uh, are trying to push your ways and who you are on these kids. And Danny Hoskins said, absolutely, we are. If you happen to see someone different in the world, treat them with kindness. You, may, you don't need to understand their pronouns, their anything, but you can treat people with kindness, treat individuals with kindness. First, if you lead with kindness, 
solutions will follow. I watch these kids as they're watching you and they're looking at you like you are someone they can look up to and admire. But I know there are a lot of people who see drag queens as villains and they make them out to be villains in the narrative. There's people on social media who question the objective of these story hours and make allegations about your values and goals with this. I mean, how do you deal with living in a world that has that opposition to you and where people make assumptions about who you are based on what you do? It's about loving yourself and being true to yourself and consistently uh, having the right team around you so that we are in uh, communication about what the message is people will try to distract you and pull you down. You know, my mom told me that leadership in life can be a lonely place. It's like crabs in a bowl. If you put a bunch of crabs in a bowl, one tries to get out, the other ones pull them back in. And this is about progress, this is about acceptance. Drag isn't anything new, and the name calling is teaching the children exactly what they think that we are teaching. They're doing the name calling, and saying that drag queens are teaching children something, but by doing the name calling, they're the ones that are actually teaching the children the negative behavior. There's, uh, there are people that are saying that it's uh, overly sexualized. Drag is an art form that has a place in different times of, uh, of, of the day, let's just say, or much like music. There's music that is not meant for children, and there's music that's for children. So drag, in general, has a, is an art form, and so, a, an actor can portray a role for kids and an actor can portray a role in a film that is significantly different, that's specific for adults and not meant to see by children. This is something that the parents can, uh, should have the decision to make. But the bottom line is, I can't say 100% that I know what is happening in every drag story hour, but we don't hear of anyone getting arrested uh, for uh, inappropriate behavior with children as a drag queen. But we're seeing a lot in other parts of, uh, of the world, we'll just say, and other, and other things. So I just, it's, it's frustrating uh, to me, but with that frustration, it just fuels the fire to go out and be loud and be proud and be myself so that others can see that there's a safe place and a community for them as well. I'm wondering what message you would want to share with someone who is maybe nervous about going to a drag story hour. I mean, maybe they've never engaged with LGBTQ culture and they're nervous to engage because it's maybe something they don't understand. What, what would you want to say to them? I think that the, the message is to lead with kindness, uh, lead, lead with love, and understand that just because somebody is different, you don't have to understand them. Uh, but you can treat them with respect and with kindness. And with that respect and kindness, you're then uh, allowing yourself to have an open mind and you may learn something new, not only about them, but most likely about yourself. And ultimately, we all enter this world the same way and we all enter, exit the same way. What happens in between uh, is our opportunity to better ourselves, our souls, our energy, our spirit, whatever you believe in. And so you, participating, uh, it, it could be simply just watching and listening, but having that open, open mind. You don't necessarily have to understand it for yourself, but respecting other people's uh, life paths will make you uh, a better person uh, for both your family and your community. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Buffalo What's Next. I'm Lorenzo Rodriguez, and you're listening to WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo. WOLN Olean and WUBJ Jamestown. 
your NPR station.